0: unapologetically fly i wonder why that's
1: just my attitude yeah yeah. Uh, uh, uh. hi guys welcome to glitching the code here on iconic.com and bit and they're the only places that allow us to broadcast anymore because we are very naughty boys and we're saying things that possibly maybe they don't want you to hear and who are they we can talk about that today because I'm here with author Paul Wallace of um, his new book, Scars of Eden, um, is the follow up to Escaping from Eden. Paul's done great work. And what I found fascinating about Paul's work was that his background, and, and he'll talk about that in, in the podcast, but his background is not your usual type, typical background when you come into this research. And I'm assuming we've taken a lot of flack through the years for this sort of thing. So, Paul, welcome to the show. I've had you on once before, but it's great to have you on again and talk about your new book. So, The Scars of Eden. Why did you choose the title, The Scars of Eden? I love the title. What does it mean to you?
0: G'day, Richard. Thank you for having me back. The Scars of Eden. Obviously, there's uh, kind of a dissonance in the title because people hear the word Eden, they think paradise. And then there's this horrible, ugly word, scars. How do they go together? Well, in my first book, Escaping from Eden, where you've got that same dissonance, I argue that Eden is not what we think it was that there's a telling of the story of Eden from the book of Genesis we may be familiar with, but that when you drill down into the translation of those ancient texts, there's another story hidden in plain sight in which Eden, rather than being a paradise or some idyllic garden, actually turns out to be a protected zone on planet Earth in the deep past where our ancestors were colonized by visiting extraterrestrial civilization and then genetically modified. And the stories of Eden go back to that time. And many of the stories that come out from that period of our history are stories of traumas. And it's the stories of traumas that repeat in world mythology and ancestral narratives all around the world. And so Eden means something a little bit different. The scars and the scars of Eden, really the question I'm raising is, What are the signs in our psychology as a species, in our geopolitics as a human society that go back to our contact, that go back to our time of colonization by ET visitors? I argue in the Scars of Eden that there's heaps in the way we think, understand ourselves and behave as a society that was set up in the conflicts among those sky people as Anunnaki, the powerful ones back in the day that have framed our human experience from that day to
1: this. So one of the names for them is the engineers and um, to me that rings of almost freemasonry when you talk about the grand architect, the engineers, these same principles of a manipulation that's gone on I believe and we'll come to this later in in the hour that this is going on again in many different ways. Um so what's this concept of an engineer? Do you do you believe that there was a, a Homo erectus before and they have upgraded it? Or have they kind of are there the different versions of it? Where did we originate from? Because I think the whole monkey to man thing has kind of been put to rest through the last hundred years. For me anyway, there is definitely a jump in evolution there. But is there so what is your take on, on who these engineers are?
0: Definitely. Definitely a jump in evolution, and uh, one of the greatest minds in uh, the history of uh, certainly Western philosophical thought, although you could argue he's more global than that, is Plato. And two and a half thousand years ago, he was pointing out there's a jump in our evolution that we can't explain. And he held to uh, a view of our origins that had within it the idea of us living on the planet and developing, or to use more modern language, evolving on a planet. And then he said, there was at least one intervention. When others arrived, another species, another civilization, genetically modified us and upgraded us in terms of intelligence, consciousness, and ultimately our ability to become a technological species. Plato came to that view because he had gathered information from esoteric traditions, from all around the world, from applying logic to things that can be observed. That was the view he put forward. And as I did my research for escaping from Eden, I came to exactly the same conclusion on the basis of listening to ancestral narratives from every culture on the planet. But in terms of the monkey to man question, I think one of the most interesting narratives to follow is that that comes from the Mayan tradition and you can read this in the Popol Vuh, which was an expression of the Mayan story that came out of Guatemala. The narrative had been suppressed, the books burned, the priests who'd curated the tradition, executed as the Catholic forces had gone in and taken Central and South America and it lay hidden for a couple of hundred years and then resurfaced, when the successors of the Mayan priesthood found a Catholic priest, to give him credit, whom they trusted, who was a real scholar, a Dominican friar called Francisco uh, Jimenez. And he translated it into modern Spanish. And there is a story that connects the dots in terms of us as primates, how we're connected with monkeys or apes. And according to their story, those who engineer, they used that phrase, came and worked with the forms of life that were already here. Now it doesn't spell out what exactly those forms of life were, but it says that we were the result of a sequence of genetic experiments that they conducted, we and some ape-like creatures who live in the forest. So what they're saying there is not that we were descended from apes, but that we and these apes were the result of an experiment from a shared ancestor. And so that strongly suggests that they were working with some kind of a primate, upgrading us, tweaking us until they got us to this point. And I like the Popol Vuz telling of the story because it makes clear this was a very long process And it was a messy process, and it resulted in a lot of dead ends and a lot of other creatures who had no interest, good on them, in serving superiors. And then they produced a Homo sapiens sapiens that was us, only we were a bit too smart to be managed. We were too good at at precognition, too good at anticipating things that would happen, too good at remote viewing, Our telepathy was too good. And they found... That was too much. What they wanted was a workforce who they could just give instructions to. And so they had to uh, downgrade our abilities. And the story goes, they had an emergency meeting say we, saying we can't manage these humans. How can we downgrade them? And so the chief genetic engineer, Quetzalcoatl, comes up with a vapor that when sprayed over human populations, brain damages them to the point where they're limited to their five physical senses, or have to rely on what an authority tells them, and they found they could work with that. So that's a really curious story because it addresses questions of our past. Are we connected with apes? You look at us, it seems pretty obvious we are connected, but what is the connection? And then it speaks to the present and our future because there's this question of our potential. What's our natural level of ability? What what are our powers in our healthy natural state? Absent of things being thrown into the environment to brain damages.
1: There's so much to unpack there, and I think people will be listening to that, be wanting me to ask the question. That seems to be like where we are now, and I want to come back later on to talk about the flood. And it seems to be like a almost like a, and you hear this term, the Great Reset, right now. To me, that seemed like there was something before that. We go back to the Anunnaki and that goes before the Great Flood. If you look in the kind of the timeline and that's where it all gets a bit confusing and all some of the narrative just gets all jumbled up. So I want to come back to that later. But right now, it seems to be as you're talking about these things, and we're talking about the vapour and we're talking about Quintacol. And there's a serpent attachment to that. And we look at the uh, World Health Organization. We look at the, the medical industry with the spike in the middle and the two serpents going around some people say it's dna but that also has connotations to this reptilian agenda that, that people like david talk about david like talk about and other people talk about um these are themes that go along do you think that these same people or same beings that were there doing that man could possibly still be here doing it again and that's what we call the Black nobility, these European bloodlines that go way back to Mesopotamia. It seems to be that they haven't gone away. There's clearly someone orchestrating, especially the madness that's going on now. Do you see any correlation there, too, or am I just completely off the boil?
0: Well, our ancestors bequeathed to us a great array of stories that would seem to say that we will never understand what's going on in the world until we realize that there is a layer of governance over human affairs that is higher than all the human political leaders and structures that we're familiar with. They all point us to uh, a layer of powers who are pulling strings above what is obvious and visible. Well, why? why do they all say this, and if it was true in the past, why would it be any different today? I think one thing that may have changed since the stories that were left to us by the ancient Sumerians, for instance, who talked about the Anunnaki, um, and their story is particularly interesting, I think, because if we listen to the Sumerian and the Babylonian stories in particular, what we have there is a story of visitors coming, colonizing our planet and not just using us as a workforce but giving us all the accoutrements to build a technological society. So all of a sudden from out of nowhere we have farming, city building, legal systems, money systems so on and so forth. It all seems to happen in one great hit And people who study human origins have long acknowledged there is a mystery to the sudden appearance of the Sumerian culture that had all that in place. And then the Babylonian story of Oannes and the Apkalu also tell that story of visitors coming and providing us with all that. But I think something may have changed since the days described in the Sumerian and Babylonian story And that is, I think, far more ET civilizations are involved in Project Earth than in the deep past. And when Haim Ashed, the former chief of space security for Israel said just before Christmas that on the basis of his experience and knowledge, bearing in mind, he was the brigadier general who held that position for 27 years, head of space security for Israel, He said he believed that we are already in contact with an intergalactic federation, in contact at a covert government level, but that the federation has chosen not to self-disclose until humanity's understanding of space is a little bit more developed. Now, anyone who reads ancient ancestral narratives would have said, yes, we knew that, anyone else, their jaw should have dropped because here is a very credible authoritative person saying, yes, we're in contact and we're in contact with a lot of visitors. The difference, I think, between Heimashad's Intergalactic Federation and the Sky Council of the Bible or the Sky Council of the Sumerian Stories is I think far more demographics have become involved. I think some of those who were here before are still here today. I very much hope some of them are because some of our ancestral stories talk about visitors coming and helping us. So uh, Native American story, Aboriginal Australian story speaks of people coming from the Pleiades and nurturing human society. So I very much hope they're still part of this federation. Uh, The Dogon people speak of the people of Sirius in very positive terms as well. So I hope they're part of the mix as well. And I think the reality uh, that we're looking at is that above and beyond the human governance that we can all see and hear, there is a great body of civilizations who want hands-on in the development of Project Earth. And some are warmly disposed towards humanity, Pleiadians, people from Sirius, others as well. And then some they're totally indifferent to us. Uh, like many of the ancient stories of dragons, they're indifferent to us, or they regard us as fodder or as plants to be harvested, or they're just here for what the planet can offer. And so the question is, what's the balance of power on this federa- in this federation, on this council? How can we engage intelligently with it? Do we have representation on that council that is gonna nudge things in a positive way And I think at the moment, there must be some kind of a crunch, some kind of an instability at that level, which is why we've had so much more soft disclosure happening, which is almost an insurance against it becoming blindingly obvious that we've got this kind of company.
1: Do you think a lot of people have been saying that um, that do this research, and myself included, who are concerned about a fake alien invasion being one of the useful tools for um, manipulating humanity. It's the the one world order, we must come together. Um, I don't know what president it was, but it said, imagine if there was an invasion for out of how we'd all come together. I think that's, these people are not trustworthy. So would it be possible that we need to keep an eye out for a fake alien invasion type thing A eh, that would, give more governance over to the new world order type one world system, which regardless of, of, of what could happen, giving them far more power into small amounts of people's hands would give them like, like the ID pass that's coming, that's in New York already, the key to New York, which is horrific. I, I'm concerned about fake alien invasion. Um, what are your thoughts on that sort of thing?
0: Yes, it was President Reagan. Uh, who back in the 19, early 1980s um, at the United Nations gave this speech in which he said exactly what you said. Would we not behave differently? Would we not come together if we faced an alien threat of war? And it was an unusual form of words. And everybody sat up and noticed and thought, okay, he's talking about we'd come together if we were, we were attacked by aliens. And then he sort of let the audience off the hook by saying, what is more alien than the threat of war? Blah, blah, blah. Except he would left a long pause. <laughs> <laughs> and the technological project that came out of it, which was the uh, Strategic Defense Initiative, the Star Wars, was all about having space bound weaponry. And so that itself raised the question of, is this weaponry purposed to address military attacks earth to earth, or is it really about defending us from a threat of alien war? If we just switch those words around a bit and people were genuinely asking that question and continue to ask that question as 25 senior research scientists involved in that project committed suicide, one after the other. And it was so obvious by the 25th suicide that these were not suicides at all. And the union leader for uh, research scientists, uh, Clive Jenkins I believe it was, went to the press and he said there must be a government inquiry into this because this number of suicides is statistically impossible. And Margaret Thatcher came out and said, we don't need an inquiry because the government minister has already announced that this is just an unfortunate sequence of coincidences. Well, if you have enough coincidences like that, it's a very clear message that you don't leak what this project is about. So all that got our attention to the question of, oh my goodness, is there an alien threat? Is that what this technology is all about? Now, if you think about it, that's, that's the opposite of priming the public for an alien invasion. That's thinking there might be one and trying to keep a lid on it. And if uh, manipulating us through a fake alien invasion is on the agenda, Well, our governments have an awful lot of work to do before that's going to work because they've been doing the opposite of preparing the public for that for a long, long time. And even this year with the um, charade of the Senate briefings, we've had the opposite of priming the public for an alien presence, let alone an alien invasion. There was just enough in the report for anyone who read it closely to raise money. Uh, from US government uh, to go into technology related to the UFO threat because that is how it's framed. That is how money is raised for this kind of research. And so we had the acknowledgement of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. It's always framed that way within the corridors of power But it's not sold to us that way by our governments. They've been debunking the whole idea for 70 years. So I just think we're seeing the opposite from governments right now if they wanted to stage a fake alien invasion. So if it's going to happen, I do not believe it's imminent. What our governments seem to be preferring right now is the advantage of an invisible enemy. And of course, we saw this going back to Uh, President George W. Bush, when he created the War of Terror, um, as as Borat, I think it was, called it. Um, He called it the War on Terror, but it is the War of Terror. It's an invisible enemy, and we're going to begin surrendering our freedoms because of this invisible enemy. At the time, people said, oh, my goodness, it's like his administration sat down and read 1984 by George Orwell and took it as a textbook instead of as a warning. And now in 2021, we're looking at a whole new generation of political advisors who've read 1984 and taken it as a textbook. We have another invisible enemy. And I think we're seeing right now how powerful an invisible enemy is because it allows governments to do things without scrutiny, without accountability, where everything is done uh, for our benefit for reasons that are never quite disclosed, on the basis of advice that is never revealed. Uh, I think that's the territory we're in, uh, that we are being told we're in a war against invisible enemies, and that's that's the battle and the mind games we've got to get our head around right now.
1: It's the power of suggestion, isn't it, and it's what's happened in the last 18 months. The power of suggestion that there might be something has turned the world into quite frankly uh an insane asylum it's gone completely mad absolutely completely mad what were you saying about this before i I move on from the because that's fascinating what you're talking about and i i find this stuff absolutely fascinating didn't trump do something with the space program he changed the flag or something he it was little things that he did i'm not a trump supporter by any any way shape or form but there was something in there i remember he either changed the flag, he upgraded the flag, something he did with this programme that you're talking about. Am I mistaken?
0: Um, I don't know about that specifically, but he did resurrect Ronald Reagan's language, of course, of a... Uh, of his language was of a space force with a defence implication. So all the questions that we were asking around Ronald Reagan's SDI resurfaced again because of what Donald Trump was talking about, which was rather interesting. It was also interesting that, uh, and this was mentioned by Chris Mellon, who was the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush. He highlighted the fact that President Trump had been on camera for Father's Day with his son, and his son had asked him if he was going to declassify America's UFO files, which is something obviously it's been campaigned for for a long time. And uh, President Trump said, he did have some interesting information about Roswell. And his son said, will you declassify that? And he said, oh, I'd have to think about that. Well, people raised an eyebrow, eyebrow about that because if if presidents like President Clinton, and President Obama couldn't get a briefing from the Pentagon about its knowledge of the UFO phenomenon. People thought it's very unlikely President Trump will have been given more information than they were, but that's only if we're talking about official channels. And it seems clear in the last four years since the uh, leaking of the Tic Tac video to the uh, New York Times, that there's a lot of leakage through unofficial channels as a way of moving the conversation forward and getting a bit of what we call soft disclosure out there. So I actually think he may have had uh, privileged information about Roswell. And of course, what could still be interesting about Roswell uh, all these years later, 74 years later, if it didn't have to do with the ET aspect of the story.
1: What I find fascinating about Trump, is well, a few things, but was the, the fact that his uncle was, um, I believe it was his uncle, was the guy that found Tesla's papers in his room that he died in and the hotel that he died destitute in. Apparently, it was his uncle that was the one that took the papers from the room. So Tesla obviously talked a lot about getting a lot of information for his inventions from E.T. races. He was, said he was in contact. That's where a lot of his ideas came from. And I find that fascinating as well. And also the the book that was written way many, many years ago called um, I think it's like The Adventures of Baron Trump. And it talks about him and a dog. And and it's very, very bizarre. You see how it plays out. There's clearly something big going on here, a big game that we we don't understand or we do understand. And I think people that have done the conspiracy research can start to piece this together really quickly do you see this kind of as you say you said before this attack of suppressing people's understanding this whole madness that has sped up with with this suggestion of a of a um, enemy at the moment this mind virus if you want to call it that is because they do not realize that actually people hundreds of thousands possibly millions are starting to piece this big puzzle together across many different Aspects like the stuff that you do or David does, or all the stuff that is all different stuff, but it does connect, and they're they're starting to realize that actually they're getting close now. The bigger picture starting to focus in.
0: Yes, I do think um, there is something seismic happening at the moment in terms of people questioning the stories they've been told and waking up to other layers of reality. <clears throat> so. People engage with me who've read The Scars of Eden or Escaping from Eden of every age. Every week I hear from people, every week it's every day in fact, who in their 60s, 70s are saying, I'm now realizing, and they will talk about uh, another layer of consciousness, they will talk about close encounters, they will talk about this covert layer of government, so on and so forth. and. I know people get irritated by this language, but it is like there's a great waking up going on. And an awake, alert, questioning, thoughtful populace is far harder to manage. And you see through history that governments do try and modulate how conscious or alert their people are. So this translates into how much education they're provided, How much information they're provided with through the media? How much freedom is allowed to journalists? Now, these are all very topical questions right now. Certainly in Australia, last year in education, for instance, the government came out and said they were going to take financial action in relation to the universities to ensure that the universities moved more towards Providing the market with industry-ready humans.
1: <laughs> robots, basically. So
0: a move away from education to industry-ready humans. But that's almost the same language as the Pop or Vu, where those who engineer say, let's engineer for ourselves avatars who are just bright enough to do the work and bring us our food. So it happens at the level of education. In the same year, there was a brutal attack on journalistic freedom. In Australia just in time for the government managing the pandemic and we've seen the journalists are absolutely terrified to breathe in this environment under pain of all kinds of threats. So managing information, managing education, another way it's done if you, I mean go and watch the movie Gladiator and it very nicely summarizes the Roman Empire's approach to things, which was that if we keep the people sufficiently entertained, yeah. and incidentally, in other languages, the word for entertainment is distractions. If we can keep the public distracted with heaps of entertainment, then we can do whatever we like. And that was the Roman approach. When the Romans wanted to take new territory, one of the first things they did was to provide. Um, And it sounds so altruistic, libraries, theaters, leisure centers, because the people would be happy if they had those. And then we can just run things and siphon everything out of the local economy and benefit from sitting at the top of the economic tree. So that's another example of things we can do to dumb the people down, give them more TV channels. Uh, It would be the modern version of that. So you've got it happening. On that level as well, and then of course, you've got the story of the vapor being sprayed over populations to actually brain damage us. And in my own lifetime, I've seen that play out in the 1970s. Journalists exercising their journalistic freedom, thank goodness, cottoned on to the fact that there were researchers around the world pointing to a connection between the fumes from vehicles using leaded fuel and brain damage of our children and it was brain damage at a massive scale and the research is pointing to the fact that people who lived in polluted areas and inner city areas and went to schools that were surrounded by idling traffic that those kids were less intelligent and more aggressive and you can see why that would be quite a difficult and controversial bit of research to do but there was lots done and they were successful in showing a correlation. And that's why we're now driving hybrid cars, or cars with lead-free fuel, because it turned out we were brain damaging our children. Go back to the Roman Empire, and it turns out the levels of lead in the city water in Rome were 100 times higher than in the regions surrounding Rome. Now, I know historians differ as to whether or not this had any impact, on the public health in Rome, but 100 times higher, I think sounds pretty significant, just speaking as a lay person. And so those two experiences, again, ought to make us alert and asking the question, what's in the environment? Why are we finding heavy metals in our oceans, in our soils? What's in the air we breathe? Because we are seeing um, health storylines that are very worrying. Uh, to do with conditions that we now just regard as widespread endemic cancers that didn't used to be Mm -hmm. there food intolerances that didn't used to be there uh, mental health issues that didn't used to be there and the research to piece together the big picture of what's in the environment that's affecting our health and our fertility never seems to get done because in whose interest is it to fund that research. But our ancestors told these stories to say, look out. Look out for stuff in the environment that might be brain damaging you. Look out for being manipulated with entertainment while the powers do something else. Uh, Look out for being manipulated with invisible enemies. I mean, that's there in 1984. And I think we have brains that are capable of so much more than we currently use them for. We have brains that are capable of f- phenomenal things, but right in the core of our brain, same as with every mammal, there is the reptilian brain, which is the fight, flight, fright bit of our brain. And if we allow ourselves to be fed constant terrors and fears, that's the bit of the brain that get, it gets engaged. The most primitive part the bit that doesn't think very well or very creatively. And so I think we need to be conscious if we are swimming in an environment of fear, which bit of our brain are we using right now? And for all those reasons, I think we are learning, I hope, to be far more deliberate about our state of mind and our emotional state, that we're far more deliberate before we get out of bed or leave our home in the morning to ask ourselves, what energy am I going to operate in today? What's my mood? What am I going to inject into my conversations? Because if I allow myself to be sucked into a pit of despond or to speak negativity, then I am going to allow myself to be manipulated and others too.
1: I think there's someone saying along the lines that they give us our mind, and that is the core of what they're kind of manipulating with that. And I think Um, And I want to talk about why kind of your background as well a little bit because we haven't discussed this. But briefly before we move on, um, when you do this sort of work and this conspiracy sort of work, there is a real danger of you doing exactly what you've just said that we need to watch out for. You end up in a pit of despair. You'll end up with no friends, no fat, like sitting on your own going, oh, my God, this is horrific. And it's something that you need to watch out for. I can do it through humour because it's so absurd which is, I find funny this, some of this stuff, because it's mad and I will be dead one day. And I find it, I I see it as a big adventure, but not always can I hold on to that. How do you keep your own mind from going mad, especially with, you look out there, people are running around with masks on, none of it seems to make any sense. It's all chaos out, and they're gonna put, give us the order out of chaos. We know that you can, you're quite privy to what's going on, obviously. How do you stay sane? And not go down these dark, dark ways doing this sort of research, because especially with someone of your background and just also really briefly describe why, how you came to this, because you've got a background in the church, haven't you? That's where you, you come from.
0: Yes, that's right. My journey onto this territory has been through 33 years in Christian ministry. Uh, I was a church doctor, a church planter, theological educator, training pastors and an archdeacon for the Anglican church. And so a lot of that work has been uh, troubleshooting and fixing. And that's an environment too, where you have to look after your mood very carefully because you see see the worst aspects of church life when, when your work has that kind of a focus of troubleshooting and fixing. And in the present day, I'm very fortunate that my wife Ruth sees things uh, in a way that's entirely similar to the way I see things. So we look after each other to an extent, and we notice if we're we're just dipping a bit in our energy or our hopefulness, uh, we uh, snap each other out of it. I've got young kids who are superb at snapping me out of it because they have all sorts of other delightful stuff going on in their lives. I have two cats who are very good at moderating my mood as well. Uh, Any cat owner will tell you that if a cat comes and sits on you and purrs, it's resetting you emotionally. So I've got all those advantages, but I do think we need to be very deliberate about looking after each other and encouraging one another because you're quite right that when you research these things, it can be very isolating and your friendship circle can diminish and, an extremist, this hasn't happened for me, thank goodness, even your family circle can reduce a bit. You have to be very deliberate about ensuring that you're keeping company with people who love you, respect you, and even better than that, share a lot of your perspectives, because that way we can we can keep our energy up, look out for one another. But it is just a fact that we have to get beyond understanding what's going on, because if we only get to that it's easy to feel totally disempowered if we're being manipulated by a covert layer of governance. What on earth can I do about that? But you've got to transcend that, and for me I'm fortunate that where my research has led me is to questions of human potential, and I believe that our natural healthy state When we look after each other, when we look after ourselves, when our diet, our lifestyle, our social lifestyle is such that we're mentally healthy, physically healthy, our potential is enormous. And I'm interested in switching that potential on. And I think as long as you've got that appetite and that hopefulness, then you can dodge uh, the soup of negativity. I think you've got to be very conscious. That There are things in the environment, whether we're talking about iconic entities or just what's in the media or just what happens when you walk into a masked town that are going to pull us down if we don't deliberately inject other things into our lives. So I think you just have to be conscious about it, deliberate about it and make a point of pushing through the coming to terms, get onto the other side of that and say, all right. Well, how am I going to live in this world? How is my family going to thrive in this strange, crazy, insane world? And how am I going to operate at a level that is not fear-based and at a level that is excited about all the things I'm going to do and learn in this material life?
1: One of my favourite books is Man's Search for Meaning. Um, do you Picture feel like Franklin. you... It's an incredible book. It's a very small book, so guys, go out and read it. It wouldn't take you long to read it. But what? even the title tells it all really um but man's search for meaning do you feel like you were put here to discover this information is this your your purpose and your adventure i see this as my adventure doing this kind of things and i've reframed it in the last couple of years as say to almost as as a way of coping um but yes. do you see this as your 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 journey your adventure to uncover this information and do you see it as an adventure almost like childlike wonder have come back into your world because this yes. stuff does give you like a understanding of oh, it's amazing. This place is amazing. Yes, it it's mad, but it's amazing. And I'm not going to be here long. So I just want to like try and figure it out because it's mad.
0: I agree with everything you've just said, Richard. And I think I'm so glad you said that because if you get into this research, you have to make it your play. Yeah. You have to enjoy it. And every time you uncover something, I think oh, my goodness, you really need to milk that wonder and amazement at what you've just discovered and share it with those that you can share it with. And what you just said about your strategy, well, that was Viktor Frankl's strategy, wasn't it? Which he learned, was he in Auschwitz and Dachau?
1: I believe so, yeah. I believe he got moved from one to the other, but either. He he
0: was in an environment that could well have destroyed him And the thing that enabled him to survive psychologically was the moment he started asking the question, what am I learning about humanity right now in this horrible situation? And he started planning in his mind, because he was a professor, what the lectures would be that he would give after the war that would arise from all the things he was learning in this ugly situation. And it was because he flipped himself back into teacher mode and learning mode that he was able psychologically to survive what was happening. And interestingly, I find there's a moment in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul had to do exactly the same thing, where he and his team all believed they were going to die, and they reached a point of despair. And he said, the thing that flipped me around, was to realize this might be happening to us in order to benefit others. Hmm. To consider the possibility they might survive and then have something to share, insights to share out of that experience. Now, he only says that in a very few sentences, but that's the journey he describes. And I think if you've got a, a teacher's mindset of, I have to share what I'm finding out, it helps you to sustain and to get through things because it gives you a means of processing stuff. It gives you that impulse to, I've got to get my head around this in some way, shape or form. And even if I only get as far as there's this layer of stuff happening that is not rational, that might be giving you enough of a handle to cope with the thing that's happening. But you've got the same impulse I do, Richard, that you have to share the journey. Uh, and I think it's a teacher's mind that, that has that impulse. If you've got that, then you've got a great tool for surviving and even thriving in the strangest and even most distressing of environments.
1: So we're kind of what we're talking about, we're coming around here to talk about faith. It, it feels like the faith that I have is what you're saying there, trying to find a way of wording it he um victor he gave himself a future he changed his vision of the future there was a reason for him being there and then he planned out his future in his head that i will use this in the future to help others so now my reason for being is completely different and everything i'm experiencing is almost like actually you're feeding me information that's my sustenance that i'm going to take into the future and use it there he changed his future And people right now are going to be seeing all of this covid madness, all this insanity. And I get hooked into it and this ID passes and it looks like the not forthright fascism is running wild. And but the reason why I'm chatting to you at like quarter to twelve at night and is that this is my reason for being. And also I've got a little boy as well. And I know that. What else would I want to do other than speak to you late on a Monday night about these fascinating topics? and think what amazing weird strange world and then this information will get passed on to someone else and get passed on to someone else and we're we're playing our part in the grand scheme of healing humanity i believe or waking humanity up and that is such a powerful feeling of that's our potential
0: oh absolutely and the wonderful thing that's happening for me At the moment is that as i do this have conversations like this and as i put out books like the scars of eden documentaries on the fifth kind tv on the paul wallace channel people watch people read and then they contact me because they need help to reframe and process in exactly the ways we're talking about and when you have a continual flow of conversations like that then the language of well i'm here to teach or i'm here to help people heal or i'm here to help people um, ascend to a better state. It becomes very nuts and boltsy. It's very real. It's absolutely tangible. It's not some will-o'-the-wisp idea. It's actual work that you're doing. And in a way, it's very, very similar to the pastoral work that I've done all through the decades. And I'm sure you find the same, Richard, that as you have conversations like that, it's very earthing, it's very grounding and it just reinforces your understanding of what, what your job is while you're having this life is to learn and share the learning, to make a journey and help others make the journey.
1: So my, my partner, she's uh, started up a Reiki business and that's her healing. And she's also a dental nurse. So she, so she helps people and cares for people all day long doing that as well. My healing and my way of um, helping the world and healing these scars that we know are there but we might not know why is to go through conspiracies and say, look, this is the world. This is why it's mad and why it does you're frightened and why you've got that gut feeling that nothing makes sense. Here's why. Let's talk about it and then maybe we can resolve it. It's scars. and, And that's what I wanted to come back to is the fact that these scars that you write about in the Scars of Eden, we knew there were scars all over this humanity, this this narrative of humanity, but we don't necessarily know why we're there. And if we don't know why we're there, we can't start to heal them. And that's what you seem to be doing. You're healing these scars by trying to get people to understand why they're there. Does that kind of make sense?
0: Oh, wow, Richard, thank you. Yes, that is exactly it. And that's why I don't know if you've reached the end scars of Eden. That's why it ends in the way it does. Uh, to make the point that you just made, that when we understand why we think certain ways, why there seems to be certain damage in our human patterns, once we understand what caused the scars, that's when we begin to heal inwardly and find different ways of living. So you've, you've just described the purpose of my book beautifully, Richard, so thank you for that.
1: Well, it seems that the purpose of both of our work, and I think it's the purpose of everybody's yes. work on this planet, is I, that even the person who makes a coffee for you, or cleans the streets, or takes the bins out, we're all healing each other and helping each other, and scars. And if we could just, people could just understand that no matter how big or small the job is perceived to be, you're healing each other by helping each other, and that, and you're healing yourself. Do you yeah. think that we'll go one beyond that before before we leave it? that we are this is the body we're talking about the dna um manipulation and the brain shutting down the computer system and making it not function as well but there's another level do you think the soul that goes into the body is one soul we are all one being and is that your version of god the god consciousness how do you kind of describe that how do how what's your thought but i'm really interested because i someone who's got the background that you've you've got your thought processes when it comes to the soul
0: I love Plato's perspective on this and Plato's perspective was one that was accepted by a significant swathe of early church fathers right at the beginning of Christianity Uh, and then it kind of got forgotten but rediscovering Plato for myself I realized he had this very empowering understanding of our consciousness and of God he believed that in the beginning was consciousness that consciousness preceded the material universe. He believed that there was this unified field of intelligence and consciousness that then fractalized to form the material universe, which exists in order for the consciousness to experience itself. And that our consciousness is derived from source consciousness. It seems an obvious thing to say, really, if you put it that way. And so we begin, as aspects of the consciousness of the cosmos, this unitary consciousness, then we individuate and have these apparently separate experiences as conscious beings, except we get glimpses we're connected, you know, when we have telepathic connection or when we are carrying the memories or experiences of another person, or we suddenly experience... The death of another person that we're not even related to. It just gives us the hint that our consciousness is all connected. We're all here on a learning journey to learn stuff. And then after this material life, we enrich the whole again with what we've learned on the way. That was Plato's view. It's actually there in the Gospel of John because that's how Jesus understood himself. If we take John's Gospel to uh, be an explanation of that. And that's how I see the journey as well. And I think it can, if we can get that feeling and thought into our bones, I think it allows us to live with far greater confidence. Like you were saying earlier, see this as an adventure. I'm here to have experiences. I'm here to learn stuff. And then we're going to enrich each other with all the stuff that we've learned. And in the meantime, we are in bodies that exist in order to host consciousness, our bodies are consciousness sponges, which is why we can pick up on each other's consciousness. It's, it's what empathy is. It's what remote viewing is. It's what precognition is. It's what telepathy is. And by the time we've lived enough years, we realize that consciousness is far more interesting than any of our textbooks have told us. So that's my general view. And it, it again, gives me this appetite to find out more what it means to have this conscious experience and to heighten it because the world is full of shamanic and mystical traditions that are about heightening our consciousness, turning our brains back on and having an even more interesting human experience as a result.
1: Which I think is what's happening the globe over and maybe there there is a cult, I believe there's some sort of bloodline cult that isn't human that is trying to suppress that even more. I genuinely believe that. I, I've looked through the 15 years of research. There's enough to, for me to go, yeah, there is a bloodline cult that is very wealthy and does want to suppress that even more. What I wanted to ask you as well, just before we go, is when it comes to Jesus, do you believe Jesus was a real flesh and blood person or do you believe it was an analogy for human potential?
0: It's a great question. Uh, the Gospels were written by highly intelligent Uh, philosophers and theologians Uh, and so yes there may be that second layer to it but I do believe that they were writing about a real historical person and the reason I believe that is that the Jesus of the Gospels is so inconvenient to the Christianity that emerged in his name so inconvenient to the powers of the empire that adopted Christianity it would make zero sense to create that jesus if what you wanted was to create a compliant citizenry there's so much in there that is at odds with feudalism and organized religion that i it makes no sense to say it was invented for that purpose so for that reason i'm pretty confident there was a real historical jesus but that what he began got very quickly hijacked by the powers and by the empire in particular to twist it round until they had a religion of worship and obedience and compliance where being a good Christian became indistinguishable from being a good obedient citizen. And that's a distortion. It's not hard to track uh, through the annals of history. It's
1: fascinating. It fascinates me. Some of the things that have been attribute, uh, attributed to Jesus, like even the birth date and Sol Invictus and, and the, uh, the rising of the sun and the moon going round. Some of it is in- incredible to see where it's been layered and, and, and hidden. Yes, underneath. that's
0: right. So that's where the question of well, who were the writers? What knowledge did they have? What stuff had they read? Where's that all come from? Because there are all those layers in the telling of the story for sure.
1: It is fascinating, but what's even more fascinating is that even if it is an essence of, of a person that was real, and I, obviously I have no idea, I'm only 30, i 40, I wasn't around, um, <laughs> that it's that sliver of humanity and hope has survived, regardless of how much has been beat down and suppressed and built upon and lied about. Something has survived. It's giving me goosebumps. And that, yes. to me, is humanity. It's something <sighs> to be human.
0: I agree. And I do think in the story of Jesus, as we have it, we have the story of a human being who is willing to live uh, fearless or at the very least to act fearless and show us what a human life looks like when it's lived that way. And you can't help but be inspired by that when you see it.
1: And I think with the people with the conspiracies, I wrote something today is that I do believe the real frontline workers are the conspiracy who are theorists of the world at the moment. And we will never be in our lifetime. Probably we will never get the, like Jesus, like, like all of these figures through the years, they're completely condemned. We'll be hung out to dry, but it will be decades in advance. There'll be the people that really dug into this stuff at the time. And I think the story of Jesus, whether it was a real person or not, teaches us that is that, Probably if you stand up for what's right in an insane asylum, which the world is, you might be condemned for it quite heavily, but that's not the point. The point is that you did it because you believed it was the right thing to do.
0: Yes, very often the pattern is you're condemned in your lifetime and then canonised after you're dead. (laughs) And sometimes you just have to be willing to play that long game.
1: But isn't that the essence of... of um living forever welcome or the word i'm looking for now what is it called it's, it's called uh, when you live forever i forgot the words gone straight out of my head oh, well. when eternal um life. eternal life is in the stories that tell, people tell tell about you in the decades to come
0: yes i think again coming back to what you're saying before richard if you can have a framework of what's my contribution what am i sharing that will help people then you really can take a long view and take pleasure from the fact that things you might be recording right now or writing right now can actually be like a depth charge that will continue to have an effect long after you've gone on to whatever follows this material life I take pleasure from that for sure but I'm very excited by people engaging right now and having conversations like these with people
1: so to wrap it up Paul thank you for your time and thank you for getting up so early and and willing to speak to me. um, And I'm glad you're feeling better this week. Um, How would people like you like to be remembered for your work and your books? And what have you got coming up that you would like people to know about that's gonna gonna add to your legacy and and live beyond your your earthly years?
0: First of all, I want to affirm people who have seen things that have shattered their worldview and then find they're in good company people who've had anomalous experiences, close encounters. I love the fact that they'll talk to me and say, thank you, I feel affirmed. I actually feel sane now because you understand what I've seen or what happened to me. So I I love that that's happening. I'm very happy that that will be part of my legacy. But the other side is waking up to our potential and to find people who have a fresh appetite in their life whatever decade of life they're in, because of waking up to the kinds of things I'm talking about. So that kind of impact I'm really excited about. And if my books can put into mainstream conversation, these aspects of who we are as a species, what's the truth about our origins, what's the truth about our potential, then I'll be very, very happy.
1: So where can people find your work for?
0: You can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kindle, high Book Depository, wherever books are sold, you'll find The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden. And if you want to get into conversation with me about what you're reading there, I love to dialogue with my readers. You can go to The Fifth Kind TV on YouTube, go to the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube, go to PaulAnthonyWallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W A L L I S.com. And you can follow my research, get in contact with me through the website. I do coaching with people through the website, and we can. Have some
1: conversations well thank you for your time Paul guys I hope you enjoyed that I will put all the links below to Paul's work please do grab his books I've got both his books I haven't finished the second one yet about halfway through it but I'm a big fan of the first one and the second one's a great I love the accounts the second one talks about more people's personal accounts of what these things are going on and these different experiences I had. I've had a few experiences myself through the last sort of 20 years and um does change your view changes your worldview one happened not even that long ago about a year ago but guys i'll put the link below thank you paul for your time thank you for getting up so early and thank i will switch you, speak you soon. soon take care it's been a pleasure
0: i'm unapologetically fly i wonder why that's just my attitude yeah okay that's just my